Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. The political and economic climates have dramatically changed since Kyoto and Bali. Now climate change negotiators are headed to Poland to figure out what's next. Oh, I'm a tremendously worried optimist. I, I think I am optimistic seeing what a new U.S. president could do to transform this debate internationally. Also saving tropical forest as if lives in our planet depended on it. The last uh, 20 years, the world has been asking us, how can we cut deforestation in Amazonas? But the world must ask how the local people can improve the standard living they have over there. And ideas for green stocking stuffers this week from Living on Earth. Don't be naughty, be nice. Stay with us. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman, in for Steve Kerwood. Poznan, Poland is the place to be if you want to help save the planet from climate change. For 12 days in December, Poznan plays host to 8,000 delegates from 190 countries, there to discuss what should happen when the Kyoto Protocol comes to an end in 2012. Kyoto committed most industrial nations, except the U.S., to deep cuts in greenhouse gas emissions. Progress has been a mixed bag, but now a global economic meltdown and a change of administration in Washington dramatically alter the climate for a new treaty. Jennifer Morgan is director of global climate change for E3G. It's a think tank that focuses on international sustainable development, and she's on the phone from Berlin. Thanks for joining us, Ms. Morgan. Thank you. So what are your expectations of what's going to happen at the um, 12 days of Poznan? Well, I think my expectations are that the negotiations will be moved forward, hopefully, with a new sense of hope and momentum. Um, This meeting falls within a two-year negotiating time frame from Bali when this new round was launched last year to Copenhagen when a new agreement is scheduled to be reached in December of 2009. So it's a bit of a middle kind of stock-taking meeting, uh, but hopefully one which will provide some hope for us moving forward in the final year of negotiations. But no concrete uh, treaty or agreements? No, the the way that the, the negotiations are scheduled is that this one is really about getting all of the ideas out on the table, on understanding countries' positions more, but no final outcome is expected here. It's just a year too early. We, we need one more year to get everything done. But, you know, it's interesting because the world hasn't even met the commitments to cut emissions under Kyoto. I'm feeling pretty confident that the European Union will meet its commitments, that Japan will meet its commitments, and that pretty much all of the industrialized countries, perhaps except for Canada, will in the end uh, meet the targets that they agreed upon in Kyoto. We're just um, in the middle or kind of getting started on that. We'll know in 2012. But Italy's emissions are actually up 13%. The United States, which is not a signature to Kyoto, has... um an increase of 14% over 1990 levels. 
the way that the Kyoto Protocol works is that countries should reduce as much as possible or meet the substantial part of their reduction targets domestically through domestic reductions, but they are also allowed to invest in projects in developing countries that reduce emissions and then use those credits that they generate from those projects towards meeting their own targets. So it's a bit of an investment in developing countries. And I believe that Italy has a pretty ambitious program on that in order to make up the gap of what it hasn't done domestically. So, um, And as far as the United States goes, well, uh, that is the big question, is how the new Obama administration will hopefully come in and, and turn around the tide of rising emissions in the United States. Mm-hmm. Of course, uh, Mr. Obama is not going to uh, Poznan, and nor is he sending a delegation there. That's correct. Uh, I think he has stated quite clearly that we have one president at a time. And uh, in his video message recently that he gave to Governor Schwarzenegger's meeting, I think he made it clear he knows that the Poznan meeting is taking place. He's noted that the work of the negotiators there is important for the planet, but we can expect him to engage once he's taken office. And I I think uh, that seems like the right thing to do to me. You spoke of hope and momentum. How much is pie in the sky? Ivo de Boer, who's the head of the Climate Change Secretariat for the United Nations, uh, has said that you know lowered oil prices will mean less of an incentive to invest in renewables. The economies of the world are tanking. Will companies and countries want to invest in costly emission cuts? When you look at the state of the economy today and the types of short-term initially actions that can be taken to curb the climate crisis, you actually see quite a lot of opportunity because the things that we need to do to slow down global warming are things that save energy. For example, if you're looking at the government pumping billions of dollars into the economy, then it would make a lot of sense for that money to be going into new uh, train systems in the United States to get cars off the road and reduce dependency on oil and curb emissions energy efficiency programs uh, for low-income housing to save money, create new jobs. Leaders really have to have all of these goals in mind. They cannot operate in a business-as-usual world anymore where we just continue to pump money into old technologies, whether they be cars or infrastructure or anything else. Do you expect the United States uh, will become a signature to a new climate treaty next year? I do expect that. I certainly hope it. I think that the way that these negotiations were launched last year, even with a Bush administration, they were done so in a way that there is a space uh, for the United States to engage, both in looking at what its own emission reduction targets could be, but also how it can cooperate uh, globally with other countries to move forward on tackling climate change and building the base for a low-carbon economy. Ms. Morgan, you're an optimist. Oh, I'm a tremendously worried optimist. I I think I am optimistic seeing what a new U.S. president could do uh, to transform this debate internationally. But I, I think that the moment is hopefully there where the economic realities come together with the scientific realities to move forward. That doesn't mean that this isn't a a massive challenge that won't require all of us to come together and try and tackle it. But I I think that the issue is so fundamental to the the future of the planet that my hope is that uh, leaders will get it. 
Well, Ms. Morgan, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Jennifer Morgan is Director of Global Climate Change for the think tank E3G. One of the most powerful tools in the fight against climate change is the tree. A tree removes carbon dioxide from the atmosphere during photosynthesis and stores it. But if you cut a tree down, the CO2 is released back into the air, which is why the world needs to preserve its vast tropical forests. Cutting them down releases 20% of global carbon dioxide emissions each year. Now in a bid to curb deforestation, governors from tropical regions have joined with their American counterparts. Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet reports. It's no secret that many U.S. states are frustrated by the federal government's lack of action on climate change. Some states have been moving ahead with policy on their own. And in recent days, three U.S. governors, led by California's Arnold Schwarzenegger, went one step further. They held state-to-state talks with governors of major rainforest provinces in Brazil and Indonesia. Peter Seligman of Conservation International noted the occasion. This is a absolutely remarkable gathering, one of those tipping point moments when you have the governors of states that control over 50 percent of the tropical forests on Earth gathering to sign agreements with uh, the governors of California, Wisconsin, and Illinois. At a climate summit in Los Angeles, the Brazilian, Indonesian, and American states signed an agreement to cooperate to preserve tropical forests. They also agreed to work together on the sticky issues of quantifying and monitoring what's being preserved. Forests hold an immense amount of carbon. If tropical regions can guarantee forest protection, they can sell carbon credits to U.S. industry. The devil, all agree, is in the technical details. How do you come up with real measurable, permanent, and verifiable agreements. The presence of governors from Indonesia and Brazil was significant because these two countries are among the top five emitters of CO2 in the world. China and the United States rank one and two. And nearly all of Indonesia and Brazil's emissions come from forest loss. Governor Eduardo Braga heads the largest forested state in the world, Amazonas, in Brazil. It's like 2.5 times the size of the Texas. He said the people who live alongside the forest in Brazil are his nation's most desperate, with incomes only a fraction of the Brazilian national average. Who lives by the forest? They are the really guardians of our environment. They have $1,000 a year as per capita income. So they are really poor. Braga says he needs no convincing that working together with industrialized nations is essential. In fact, he says it's overdue. The last uh, 20 years, our people are waiting for new answers from the world about the forest. Because the world has been asking us, how can we cut deforestation in Amazonas? But the world must ask how the local people can improve the standard living they have over there. Braga is already working with the Marriott hotel chain on one income-producing forest protection project. Ana Julia Carepa is governor of the neighboring Brazilian state of Pará, where deforestation has been rampant. Satellite monitors are now a help, but she says she awaits the day when her residents can make more money protecting the forest than cutting it. Criar o reflorestamento como 
We want to create reforestation as an economic alternative. We want to reforest one billion trees in five years. The governor of the Indonesian province of Aceh has already struck the first rainforest for carbon credit agreement with a conservation group. Yusuf Irwandi says he's shown it's possible to stop logging altogether and bring down the rate of poverty. When I took office in 2007, I announced the moratorium on logging. Till now, still in effect. There are so many concession holders who want to go to shop again my forest. I stopped the The governors face skepticism over the idea of cash for credits. The European Union wants to hold off on forest credits until monitoring and anti-fraud measures develop further. And some indigenous advocates are concerned that forest credits could mean newly valuable forest could be taken away from native people. But the Indonesian, Brazilian and U.S. governors at the summit say they're pleased to be one step closer to admitting forest credits into an American carbon market. They hope their state-to-state diplomacy will send a message to national-level leaders at climate change talks in Poznan and later Copenhagen that the issue of forest carbon is not too hot to handle. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobet in Los Angeles. Just ahead, China gets serious about cleaning up coal. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. It's the changing of the work shift at China's giant coal mine in Shaanxi province. Miners emerge from deep underground, their faces and clothes black with coal dust. The province contains a third of China's coal reserves. Back in the 1980s, Shaanxi became the nation's energy powerhouse, driving China's phenomenal growth but polluting the region's air, water and soil and poisoning the lungs of miners and residents. Now the local government is trying to get Shaanxi off the country's environmental blacklist. From Shaanxi province, Elise Potaka reports. To the melody of Happy Birthday, a truck winds its way through the streets of Linfen, spraying water on the road to settle the dust and pollutants. It's a small act which highlights the city's problems. For three years running, the nation's environment authority deems Linfen in the south of Shanxi province China's most polluted city. It's also one of the 10 worst polluted cities in the world, according to the Blacksmith Institute. From his modest house on the edge of town, Wang Zhang points down the lane. The air pollution here is very bad. In the afternoon, even people standing just over there, you can't see them clearly. Wang's neighbor, Yang Chunxiang, chimes in. She's in her 70s and says the air is not clear like it used to be when she was a child. The air pollution is bad, and there are more and more people getting sick. Health is not very good. There's no chance for people here to be fit and well. And while Linfen might be the worst, it's certainly not the only polluted city in Shanxi. The province's capital, Taiyuan, is covered in a brown layer of smog. The land here is a patchwork of farmland, coal and boresite mines, power stations, chemical factories and metal foundries. 
The Fin River is the heart of Taiyuan, running right through the center. On a bridge crossing the river, signs are posted saying no fishing. Three locals dangle fishing lines into the water below. Just not far away, dead fish drift, their white bellies turned skywards. The fishermen say they aren't worried about pollution and that the fish are OK to eat. But Tao Haixia, a researcher from the Shanxi Energy Economic Research Institute, says the Fen River is far from healthy. The Fen River is severely polluted. In the 40s and 50s, the river's water level was really high and boats could travel up and down it. Now many of its tributaries have dried up. In Shanxi, 70 percent of waterways are polluted. 50 percent of these are seriously polluted and can't be used. And Tao also backs up the assertions of the people in Linfen, who say air quality has deteriorated there. Atmospheric pollution is very serious, and respiratory illnesses in Shanxi are common. Cancer rates among residents are also high. But with Linfen's pollution drawing international attention to Shanxi, the Chinese central government and local authorities have rolled into action. They've installed scrubbers on coal-fired power plants, closed mines and older factories, and they're now trying out a new tax program with the coal industry. Cao Haixia explains. For every tonne of coal each company sells, they have to put aside about $1.50. This money is then used for reducing pollution and protecting the environment. And in some big cities, including Linfen, some locals say the environment is improving. These workers building a road in Linfen say many of the worst factories have closed and the air is much better than two or three years ago. Taxi driver Xiao Hui sees the same thing. At least now, he says, he can see the sun. We used to get up in the morning, but we couldn't see the sun. It was always dusty. Now, lots of factories have been shut down, this year and last year. The Ministry for the Environment this year announced that Shanxi's sulphur dioxide emissions decreased more than 6% between 2006 and 2007. The discharge of organic pollutants has also decreased. The Shanxi provincial government is also offering direct rewards to city leaders. If they manage to get off the country's list of top five most polluted cities, they'll receive a $146,000 reward. They hope this will discourage leaders from being tempted to take bribes. But with polluting mines and factories closing, some locals are worried about jobs. Shanxi's counties rely on coal to support their economies. Mining and industry money has, in recent decades, lifted the living standards of many residents. Now some say it's hard to find work. Mrs Zhang sells snacks on the street to earn money. I'm 72 years old and I have five children. They're not working. There's nothing we can do. Even the coal mines don't want people now. Lots of people here have no work. In areas outside the cities, it can be even tougher. This villager says neither she nor her husband have work. And she says the air here is still just as polluted as before. No one cares about life in the villages, she says. 
The situation here is symbolic of China's larger struggle to lift people out of poverty whilst protecting the environment. Change is happening, but the government admits that the benefits aren't always evenly distributed. But if, in the next few years, a place with as many challenges as Shanxi can manage to successfully transform its environment and economy, it could act as a blueprint for the rest of the country. For Living on Earth, I'm Elise Portaker in Shanxi. Coming up, robosaurs roam the aisles of toy stores. Dinosaurs get a new lease on life thanks to robotics. But first, this cool fix for a hot planet from Jessica Lee Smith. Hawaii is leading the race to use the sun's rays to heat household water. With so much sun and nearly all of its fuel imported, the state has much reason to put down the oil and soak up the sun. Hawaii's legislature has passed a measure requiring all new homes to have solar rooftop water heaters beginning in 2010. This puts Hawaii in the lead for solar hot water. Most people in Hawaii have electric hot water heaters. And unlike most states, Hawaii gets almost 75% of its electricity from petroleum-powered plants. Water heating can account for nearly a third of a homeowner's electric bill in Hawaii. So going solar could mean a sizable monetary and petroleum savings. Each day, several places within the state receive 450 to 500 calories worth of solar radiation per square centimeter. If that energy were converted to gasoline, it would roughly equal 15 gallons a day from the average size rooftop. So Hawaii has the potential to make a real dent in its reliance on fossil fuel. Not everyone is happy with this move. Some people fear the bill could lead to a slew of hastily built systems of poor quality. And some are concerned solar heaters will drive up the price of housing. Even with these questions, this bill will bring much attention to sun-heated water. For now, with some areas of Hawaii boasting up to 300 days of sunshine a year, it seems like the perfect place to go out and catch some rays. That's this week's Cool Fix for a Hot Planet. I'm Jessica Elise Smith. And if you have a cool fix for a hot planet, we'd like to know about it. If we use your idea on the air, we'll send you a sleek, cool blue Living on Earth tire gauge. Keep your tires properly inflated and you could save over $280 a year in fuel costs. That's according to a study done at Carnegie Mellon University. Call our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Or email coolfix, that's one word, at LOE.org. That's coolfix at LOE.org. a time, seems like eons ago, when toys were simple and fashioned from wood, cloth, metal, and paper. But times have changed and toy technology has evolved. The Japanese toy maker Yugobi is one of the companies leading the way with a new generation of Toyosaurus, as Spectrum Radio's Prachi Patel Pred reports. When Yugobi announced that Pleo, the robotic dinosaur, would hit store shelves in late 2007, parents of pet-loving kids rejoiced. No more hair on the couch or litter boxes to clean. Puppy-sized Pleo would be an ideal pet, cute and friendly, without the needs of a live animal. 
12-year-old Nadia Nee was intrigued. Fleo could walk around and it wouldn't walk off the table. Like, we tested that a lot. And it would squirm when you hung it by its tail. And it would sometimes, like, skid a lot. I, I, like, when it would go on the, on the wood floor sometimes. Oh, and you could tickle its feet. California-based Yugobi calls its products life forms. The company's goal is to create lifelike creatures using state-of-the-art robotics technologies. Plio has six microprocessor chips, a camera, 14 motors, two microphones, and eight skin sensors. It responds to touch and voice, cries when it's hungry, goes to sleep when it's tired, and likes to cuddle. As nine-year-old Misha Nee found out, Plio can also occasionally surprise you. Oh, once she snuggled up with one of my stuffed animals and then fell asleep with it. And there's one other time when she was in my room, she like stood on two legs and said, ta-da. Plio is turning out to be one popular dinosaur robot. And it seems to have set off a trend. Oh, there's absolutely a dinosaur toy trend this year. There's a lot of dinosaurs that are robotic playmates. Renee Rice is a trend specialist for the Toy Industry Association. She says that many parents are looking for science and discovery toys. Dinosaurs fit the bill, and all the better if kids can interact with them. Kids are growing up looking for interactive toys that will react to them, and parents are looking for products that actually respond to a child and and the child can actually use their imagination to play with. Now other major toy manufacturers are looking for a piece of the pie. Take Spike, the ultra-dinosaur from Mattel's Fisher-Price division. Remote-controlled Spike is designed for three- to eight-year-olds. It stomps around, roars, rears up its front legs, and flashes the spikes on its back. Then there's the D-Rex, which Mattel calls the ultimate pet for boys. D-Rex is ferocious and loyal. It responds to voice and touch, makes over 100 noises, wags its tail, and even guards its owner's room. Or perhaps you want more cute and cuddly options. Nothing says cute more than a soft, gentle, baby triceratops. Play school's Kota the Triceratops moves its head, blinks, and roars. And kids can hop on and pretend to ride it. All those fancy robotics come at a price. Kota costs about $300, while Spike and D-Rex are about $150 apiece. Plio, the most sophisticated of the bunch, tops the list at about $350. A recent free software download from Yugobi's website gives the toy the ability to learn. So every Plio can develop a unique personality based on how it's treated. One problem with Plio so far seems to be the rechargeable battery that runs for about half an hour and then needs a three-hour recharge. And even with all the bells and whistles, the creature's appeal is limited. Like, I thought it was cool when I first got it, but after playing with it for a while, it sort of got really repetitive. But if your kids ask for a pet this year, and you dread the care, feeding, and cost of a real animal, a robotic dinosaur just might be the easy way out. 
For Living on Earth, I'm Prachi Patel Pratt. Sounds like a perfect pet for the White House. Our story on robotic dinosaurs comes to us courtesy of Spectrum Radio, the broadcast edition of IEEE Spectrum, the magazine of technology insiders. Maybe a Robosaurus isn't what Santa has in store for you this year. Perhaps you're looking for something evergreener, something more environmentally sound. Well, the folks at Living on Earth have made a list and checked it twice. My suggestion for a green holiday gift is a wallet or bag from Used Rubber USA. They make their products from recycled rubber tires. I carry a tiny purse that I bought from their original store on Haight Street in San Francisco years ago. It's just the right size for some cash, a few cards, and a subway pass. It's sleek, waterproof, and recycled. What could be better? I like to give my family gifts from Heifer Project. It's an organization that gives livestock to needy people around the world so that they can grow their own food and provide for themselves. The way it works is that I give a donation and my family gets a card saying I've bought bunnies or geese or honeybees in honor of them. This year I'm going to make my friends mix CDs because I don't get to spend a lot of time with them, but it's a way for them to know what's playing in my headphones even if they're on the other side of the planet. I'm a keen gardener, so I like to both give and be given seeds. They're always welcome for me. And if you like to garden, one thing you can do is pot up crocuses, iris, daffodils, paper whites, hyacinths, lily of the valley, scylla, any of those things. You can put in little pots and they'll flower early in the year. At nativeseeds.org, you can buy your loved ones a packet of seeds that'll grow traditional crops. It's a unique, affordable gift that'll help support crop diversity and indigenous communities. My idea of the perfect holiday gift is something that requires no batteries, no plastic, no assembly, and will bring joy day after day and year after year. They're renewable, and each is unique, with lots of choices. There are those that provide food, keep you cool in summer and warm in the winter. They all clean the air from pollutants, and they measure the passage of time. How about giving a tree? I who never had much, I now have a treasure. My suggestion is BOGO flashlights. They're powered by a solar panel and will last you at least three or five years. And for every one that you buy at $39, a second one is sent to a community in the developing world. They send them to places like refugee camps or orphanages in Africa. You know what they say about a guy with a big carbon footprint? That's right, he needs a carbon offset. Several companies will gladly take your money and invest it in clean energy projects. In return, you get a certificate showing that you have effectively canceled out the greenhouse gases from, say, someone's holiday travel. If you really want to have fun with it, you could wrap it around a lump of coal for the perfect stocking stuffer. I've got my love to keep me Living on Earth's 2008 Green Gift Guide was produced by our technical director, Jeff Turk.
Coming up, a rare breed of farmer tends her endangered flocks. So typically a commercial farm might raise all one bird, like a New Holland. So what we'll be doing next season is bringing in uh, most likely a chocolate turkey, which is on a critical list. Saving our heritage one turkey at a time. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. It was poet Ogden Nash who wrote, I think that I shall never see a billboard lovely as a tree. Well, if Ogden Nash were alive today and took a trip to Times Square in New York City, he might get quite a surprise, as Living on Earth's Jesse Martin reports. Times Square. There's nowhere else in the world quite like it. Stand on the corner of 7th Avenue and 42nd Street. Look in any direction, day or night, and you'll face a wall of flashing billboards and glowing LED screens. Some people love it. I'm from New York, New York City, and I love Times Square. It's awesome. Action, energy, everything. Awesome. And some don't. Oh my good lord. During the holidays, avoid it at all costs. If I have a choice, I, I don't go to Midtown. But starting in December, there'll be a new glowing billboard in Times Square. One that really stands out. And not because it's the biggest or the brightest. It's the first of its kind, so it is completely unique. And uh, it will be, you know, 100% driven by wind and sun. And um, it will shine, a, uh, hopefully, a very bright light on Broadway. That's Ron Pateski. He's Senior Vice President for Marketing at RICO, the company that's building the eco-friendly sign. Sixteen wind turbines will be stacked in towers on either side of the billboard. They're specially designed to use the quirky winds in Times Square, and they work at wind speeds as low as five miles an hour. Poteski says the billboard will also use any sunshine that makes it into the square, thanks to the 64 solar panels placed along the top of the sign. If there's not wind or sun for a period of time, we may not light. And as far as Rico's concerned, that's fine. This is a Rico advertisement. You know, it, it's certainly not a life or death situation if the light goes on. So we're fine. We think it's kind of cool. You know, worst case, you've got a lot of hot air in New York one way or the other. So we'll, we'll be fine. But Poteski doesn't think the billboard will go dark too often because it's equipped with batteries that can save up enough energy from the sun and wind to power the sign for four cloudy, still days. RICO estimates that running their billboard on wind and solar energy will save them twelve dollars to $15,000 a month in energy costs. But Poteski insists that saving money isn't the company's main aim. So the reason that we've developed this echo board is to try to promulgate the idea that companies can be responsible and that companies can be creative in the way that they save energy. So, of course, a company like RICO or any other large company, we advertise and we don't think our advertising should leave one, you know, ounce of carbon uh, to hurt the environment. In fact, RICO estimates that by running their billboard on renewable power, they will prevent 18 tons of carbon dioxide from entering the atmosphere every year. And that impressed at least one New Yorker. If I knew that this wasn't just a big electric bill going on here, I don't think 
I would be as uh, anti-Times Square. The Rico billboard is scheduled to have its grand opening on December the 4th, if the weather cooperates. For Living on Earth, I'm Jesse Martin. You have to wake up pretty early in the morning to beat Jennifer Cermak to work. She's up before the sun to tend to her animals. <coughs> Jennifer Cermak is a fourth-generation farmer, which makes her something of an endangered species. Less than 2% of Americans live and work on a farm or ranch. Fewer still are women, and even rarer is the farmer who raises endangered farm animals, which Jennifer Cermak does at Berlin Farms, about 40 miles west of Boston. At Berlin, she's turned an old barn into a farm stand and restaurant, and out back she raises rare chickens, turkeys, rabbits, horses, and sheep that are small in number but long on heritage. Believe it or not, but there are a lot of endangered barnyard animals because there are so few small farms in existence. Um, there are a lot of commercial farms that will carry one breed, for example, one breed of New Holland turkey. But <clears throat> because there was a great breed diversity in the mid to late 1800s, we've lost that breed diversity as we've gone to uh, large commercial farms. So you're protecting endangered farm animals? Yes. I think most people think in terms of endangered rainforest, endangered African wildlife, and they don't realize that, that this is a problem in their own backyard. How big a problem? I mean, I haven't noticed it, to be honest with you. Sure, and that's because most people don't live in an agricultural zone and um, have the hands-on access and experience to what's going on in those farms. For example, one of our chickens, are there's probably only 500 left in the United States, uh, which puts them on a critical list. What kind of chickens? Um, they're called Sumatra. They're a big, or a smaller, uh, very fancy-looking black chicken. Can we see it? Absolutely. He'll come out because of the rain. I think everyone wants to stay indoors dry. We'll go fish him out. Whoa, look at those birds. So if you see the big fancy black ones with the long tails, the three of them, those are Sumatras. And right here we have um, a speckled Sussex and a Rhode Island Red. The Sussex, is it, is it rare? Uh, yes, they are. All of these are on watch lists, either critical and endangered, based on their numbers in the United States. Where do you get them from? So you have to buy birds in the state of Massachusetts for, from people that have um, licensed approvals. You can't just ship birds across state lines um, from, from you know, non-accredited um, hatcheries. What are you going to do with them? Are you going to breed them or am I going to have it in a pot pie? <laughs> right, so this is a no-kill farm. Um, so what we do is we sell the chicken eggs. So we sell chicken and turkey eggs. And we also use it in our baking. We have a brunch service Monday through uh, Saturday and Sunday. And we use the eggs and omelets and pies, things like that. They really do that. They really do. And they start about 3 o'clock in the morning. So I think one starts and then the rest start challenging and it, it goes from there all day. <laughs> so you don't want to have very close neighbors. So what are these animals here? I've never seen, what is it, turkey or something? Yes, that is a turkey. So this is uh, called a royal palm turkey and there's fewer than a thousand left in the United States of these birds. 
luckily because of efforts to uh, propagate the breed, they're coming back, which is nice to see. That's what we, what we want. And we have 11 of these little guys. The bigger ones are the toms, and the more um, plain ones are the females. And what do you do with them? We use their eggs. They have a really nice big egg. It's great for baking. Tastes like a chicken egg. You can't really see, but they have a, a, if they turn around, they have a beautiful blue face and an orange, orangish red head. And they're very docile. I mean, one thing you find out quickly when you're raising different kinds of birds and chickens, and some are inherently a little nastier than others, and some are just sweet as pie. These guys are really friendly. I hand raised them. Hi, guys. So typically a commercial farm might raise all one bird, like a New Holland. So what we'll be doing next season is bringing in uh, most likely a chocolate turkey, which is on a critical list. So because we're not required to provide a thousand turkeys for the holiday season for table, we have the ability to bring in a few rare turkeys and raise them and breed them and, and let them live out their life expectancies and, and provide eggs. You know, you're solving a problem I never knew we had. Yes. Um, I think a lot of people aren't exposed to agriculture like they were before. Uh, one of the, the difficulties in running a farm like this is being able to find people that have the know-how, that aren't afraid of chickens, that know how to take care of horses. So they're endangered too. They, yes. Farm, people that have farming experience that know when an animal's sick or okay, it's, it's very difficult to find. So I'm going to show you the South Downs. The South Down sheep are recovering, which is also fantastic. They were um, an endangered breed as well. We're just going to grab some hay and go feed them. And you'll find what's neat about them is they're extremely docile. And part of what makes your farming easier is if you're dealing with animals that aren't going to give you any trouble, aren't going to ram you when you've turned around and aren't looking. <laughs> That's quite unpleasant. <laughs> Boy, it smells like a farm. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, we're going to oh, be... Oh, my. What that, is... That's right. This is the menagerie. Holy cow. That's an alpaca? That's an alpaca. And his... Well, he's, he's a South American animal originally, and he's not endangered. He keeps the sheep safe. So coyotes don't like alpacas. We have a ton of coyotes here. So the alpaca guards the herd. So what will you do with the sheep? Um, so we're going to breed them as well. Bye. Jennifer, if you could have one pair of animals that is mm -hmm. endangered, what would it be? Oh, um, well, I would have to say, um, and this is just because I was, you know, one of those schoolgirls that took lessons as, as of elementary school. It would probably be the horses. Um, you know, I just love. There are endangered horses as well. We have a Frisian that is, but you know I love to ride. So uh, for me, it would serve a dual purpose. I'd be able to ride and and be helping this cause as well. So was this a a lifelong dream for you, or you just kind of woke up one day and said, you know, I got to go save endangered farm animals? Well, you know, I always say I have memories of memories, 
So I have memories of my grandparents and my great-grandparents and how they used to farm and then when I would go visit them what they were doing. When, when I was a child my, my parents didn't have an, an active farm, not until the 80s did we purchase a farm. But I would visit my grandmother and watch her canning and uh, you know she had a, a, a rabbit house where she kept her rabbits. Um, very no-nonsense and down-to-earth. So I was, as a child, just observing this and really didn't appreciate what we had as far as how serene it was and how many skills they were teaching you. So as I got older, you know, lived in the city of Boston, had very much, you know, biotech desk life, um, I really realized that to round myself out and kind of get back to my roots, I wanted to live in an environment that was agricultural and this, this meets that. I really didn't know about about being a farmer is you need to be a mechanic <laughs> and that's a little hard so you have to be able to fix your own tractor and I haven't learned how to do that yet so that's my biggest trouble because that thing breaks down every five minutes so um, what you're looking at is a Polish, he doesn't have a lot of meat on him. He's a smaller chicken. Looks and like the, almost, what? I don't know what, I've never seen him. He does, he's pretty fancy looking. And you can see, which is probably why he's endangered, he's not one of these, you know, big-breasted roasters that falls over on itself. And you can see these birds are, are, are a little more delicate than you'd expect at table. So what is he called? He's called a Polish. How many of those are there in this country, do you know? Um, they're on a watch list. Um, maybe about 5,000, if I had to guess. Now, the USDA. Yes. Does it categorize farm animals as endangered? Not that I'm aware of. I, I believe the, the Wildlife and Fisheries uh, Organization categorizes uh, native animals. And most of these breeds were brought over from England, Europe, Asia, 1800s mid to late and that's when the breed registries were started and we started counting how many of a particular breed that we had and obviously at that time most people had chickens in their backyard and and did maintain some amount of agriculture um, so you could have breed diversity and now um, big commercial farms aren't interested in uh, maintaining these breeds obviously because the economics aren't there for them um, but it is important to to maintain breed diversity and to keep not only numbers of a particular bird, but flocks of a bird in different areas should disease break out, that there are a number of breeding areas. So this is really a treat that this can stay open to the public with people visiting and seeing these kinds of birds. Obviously, uh, with a big commercial facility, you might not want someone um, off the street walking in carrying you don't know what on their shoes and um, making a large population of birds sick. I mean, some, some of these hatcheries have 300,000 birds. So you're kind of part of agro-tourism. That's right. That's right. I'm not sure how many people have heard that phrase, but people have very little exposure to agriculture, and now that's a new business, agro-tourism showing people how to farm, giving them access to animals that they're not allowed to have in their neighborhoods, and uh, providing them a large space that's serene where they can come with their families and enjoy themselves. What's challenging as an owner of one of these farms is the liability. You're taking families that may or may not have experience with animals, that may or may not be doing different things that put themselves at risk, whether it's um, 
um, you know, in the simplest form, they don't even know they're looking at a chicken when they see these chickens. And it's, it's great that you can tell them what they're looking at. And in others, yeah, you get people that just don't have judgment. And it's, not, it's not wrapped in plastic. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. So yes, these guys have beaks and they peck and they have feelings. Um, and the reason I believe these guys are not very aggressive is because we were very gentle with them. What is that? Oh, that's my phone. Oh, so you do have some modern I do, I do. I have my Blackberry from, from work. So it, it keeps me on schedule. I probably have some reminder popping up about something. What's good about some modernization is I can find animals across the country that would be very difficult for me to source. So I can go on the internet and find um, a rare breed that's in Texas and know that there's a breeder there and talk to them about purchasing one of the animals. Hey gang, what's going on? This is Bruce. They don't seem to care. They don't seem to care. <laughs> They're very inquisitive. I try to see if there are any eggs. Anybody did any work? Nothing. So that's another point with the patience that it requires to care for some of these breeds. If you were a commercial chicken and you weren't putting out your egg quota because you're getting older, you get put to market. With us, if they have a slow day and they're not laying as many eggs, that's okay. And we're back to the cow barn. You have big plans. We do. We have a lot of work ahead of us. We've done our winterizing for the animals, so they're ready for winter. Their jackets are all in or ordered. And now we'll spend the winter making the basement look nice. You already got your music? Is it Christmas music already? It is. <laughs> it is. It's Louis Armstrong. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Farmer Jennifer Cermak at Berlin Farms in Massachusetts, where she's raising endangered barnyard animals. For photos, check out our website, loe.org. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young, with help from Sarah Calkins and Marilyn Gavoni. Our interns are Sandra Larson and Jesse Martin. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us at LOE.org. Our executive producer is Steve Kerwood. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, and the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues the Rockefeller Foundation, and its Campaign for American Workers. More at rockfound.org. And Paxworld Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. Paxworld for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI Public Radio International.